this part of uh, paragraph one, um, this list of the attributes of God. So we have two remaining, which is most free and most absolute. Um, so uh, given the amount of time we have, hopefully we can get through them. Um, I'm assuming part of this will um, include some um, some discussion that will be necessary, but that that's just fine. So uh, we will begin uh, with God being most free. <clears throat> now the freedom of God is unlimited. It is, um, as the confession says, most free. And notice on all of these attributes given when they say is most, it's in comparison to anything else that God is. The, but it's not saying that, um, you know, that we're free, but God's just greater in his freedom. But we have to remember what we understand about God in his entirety. So um, he is the fullness of freedom um, as it relates to the doctrine of simplicity. So God alone has supreme autonomy. God is a law unto himself. Um, in other words, there's nothing external to him. No laws, no powers, no distinct um, wills um, or influences that are going to govern God in how he functions and how he wills certain things in how he is as God. Nothing external to him is going to um, influence him. Uh, when making decisions and exercising his will, God does so sovereignly as the ultimate authority of all creation. Uh, the freedom of God, uh, we, we talked about um, in part when we addressed his sovereignty or his omnipotence. This is very much related um, to that great uh, doctrine. But those are dealing with the reality that God has power or that God has omnipotence. What we're dealing with now is um, the autonomous exercise of his power, the exercise of his omnipotence. God is autonomous in his ability or his right or his will to exercise his power. So there is a distinction there. It may seem mild, but... Um, it does matter. Um, now, again, remember when we talked about the omnipotence of God, we said that God can do all things, but we did identify that there were certain things that God could not do only because they would be contrary to the nature of God. And God is not going to act uh, contrary to his nature or his essence. So God cannot cease to be God. God cannot create a rock so large that he cannot pick it up. God's not going to do something that would negate his essential essence. And so, similar to that, it must be stated that the freedom of God does not mean that God is free to do anything which is contrary to his essence or his nature or his character. If God is immutable, unchangeable, um, then we must insist that uh, the autonomous will of God consists with all that God is in and of himself. Um, nothing contrary to God exists in his freedom. Um, so God will not break his law or God will not break his promises. Uh, God will not, um, again, cease to be God or do anything that would limit his freedom to be God. Um, several places, uh, there 
are tons of scripture passages we could look at. Um, I have several listed in the notes. If you want to look at them on page 19 that I gave you, um, that present the freedom of God as completely autonomous. So I'll just go down the list and read them. Job 11.10. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? Psalm 115.3. We've read this uh, previously. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Isaiah 29.16, and you also see this quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. Daniel 4.35, he does according to to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Matthew 20.15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? It's from a parable and it's referring to the father. Romans 9:15 through 18 for he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills 1 Corinthians 12:11 All these it's referring to spiritual gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And Revelation 4:11 Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So as we speak of the freedom of God we're really speaking of um the the uh, the will of God as it is worked out. And as we see through all of these passages, um, the Bible is very clear and speaks very loudly of God's freedom to do as he pleases, according to his will. And again, that will always be consistent with who God is. Now, when this comes up, um, the discussion must be had in relationship to... um, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. Um, and this um, theologically has, uh, has been a discussion that um, goes, in, goes in directions sometimes that um, maybe make us a little uncomfortable t- in terms of language, but other times maybe um, it's just that we're not understanding exactly what's going on. Um, from a Calvinistic perspective, this is a traditional Reformed understanding of how the will of God works. From a non-Reformed perspective, um, what we're about to look at is reprehensible. Um, so you'll, you'll understand why, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, I had a lively discussion with other pastors online about, I presented this question yesterday, and it was very edifying and helpful. Um, so hopefully I've been able to narrow it down for our, our benefit. Um, 
Now, God's decree is treated in an entire chapter uh, of the confession, chapter 3. So um, we're going to refer to that in one sense, but um, uh, we'll deal with it later in chapter 3 in greater detail. But we have to address in this the relationship between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. So we say that the secret will of God is that by which God purposes or decrees whatever shall come to pass, whether he wills to accomplish it effectively or to permit it to occur through the unrestrained agency of his rational creatures. The revealed, and we'll go back and talk about what that means, the revealed will of God is the rule of life which God has laid down for his moral creatures indicating the duties which he enjoins upon them. The former is always accomplished. So the secret will of God is always accomplished, while the latter, the revealed will of God, is often disobeyed. So you hear this discussion referred to in many different um, ways. Some people talk about the sovereign versus moral will of God. Others will call it the efficient versus the permissive will of God. Uh, the will of decree and the will of command, the descriptive and prescriptive will, and the will of sign and the will of good pleasure. But I've chosen to use the statement, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And most of the ancient Reformed theologians um, prefer that language as well. Now, when we speak of this, and again, I say this um, and openly admit there are there are those who would disagree with me. Um, but I don't think we should speak of God having two distinct wills. Um, so when we say this, we're speaking of one will of God, but it's being observed from um, two different um, senses. One is in relationship to us, and the other is in relationship to God. So, from God's perspective, there, there, there is only one will. And yet, from our perspective, there appears to be very distinct differences between the two. Uh, between what God has um, declared, or what God has revealed and called us to, and what God actually does and accomplishes. Um, so, obviously, the distinction's not a um, conflict within God. Um, and by that, and here's where people would take issue with what I'm saying, but I don't think we can rightly say that God desires one thing, but decrees another. If the psalmist is correct that God does whatever he pleases, then God doesn't have some kind of longing or desire that is unfulfilled. All that God pleases is accomplished. Now, to be fair, those who would oppose that statement would say that God can have um, desires that will be trumped by greater desires. So the example that would be raised is God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked from Ezekiel. Um, and amen, completely agree with that, affirm that is what the, the passage of Scripture is saying. So, but I think there's a language issue there because Ezekiel says God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It does not say that God's um, 
anything about God's desire, pleasure. Uh, in other words, God's not clapping his hands in delight and he's not overjoyed. Um, you know, obviously this deals with the issue of God's emotions and impassibility. But if we think of it in human terms, anthropomorphic terms, or anthropopastic terms, I guess. Um, God is not overjoyed. He's not bubbling up with great joy and excitement uh, that people are dying in their wickedness and being sent to hell. But, as we read in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul speaks of um, the destruction of the wicked to bring about the glory of God in His justice, in showing in his wrath, that he is a just and righteous God, that he cannot abide with sin. So, I do think that in some ways it's simply a language issue. Using the word desire, I'm simply just uncomfortable with. But perhaps if it's used um, with proper explanation that it's not necessarily a bad thing to say. But I think there's a biblical tension that we have to maintain if nothing comes to pass outside the sovereign decree of God. So, the only reason we're even making the distinction between the secret and revealed will of God is that we can have a way of discussing it. I think from God's perspective, there is no distinction. God's will is His will, and um, it comes to pass according to um, what He has decreed. Deuteronomy 29.29 is where this doctrine is really um, derived from. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So we see both of them present in what Moses writes here in Deuteronomy. The secret things of the Lord and the revealed things for us. Now, just as a side note, when people talk about Seeking or knowing the will of God, what are they generally talking about? Yeah, they're trying to figure out the secret will of God. Well, the problem with that is that it's secret. (laughs) Um, God's revealed his will to us, and therefore, when it comes to knowing the will of God, we already know it if we know the scriptures. So we turn to his word and see what he says and we derive principles and wisdom and discernment and we pray that God would help us to apply these principles to our situation and as the circumstances unfold, the secret will of God unfolds. But I don't know what that is until it happens. Um, So um, anyway, that was free. Um, In his, uh, I think a good place to go to see this at play and explained in the scriptures is, ser- uh, is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts 2.23, he says this in the midst of his sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you see what's going on here and what Peter's saying. Jesus died at the hands of ruthless, wicked, bloodthirsty men who desired his death. No question about that, right? It was a wicked, ruthless sin. The greatest sin of all mankind, I think we could rightly say. 
And yet Peter, while highlighting that, also says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I am very thankful Peter said that it was God's plan and not just the foreknowledge of God so that those who uh, try to get around the reality that God makes these things happen can't by saying, well, he just knew it was going to happen and so he allowed it to happen. By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, the revealed will of God is that an innocent man not be put to death, right? I mean, we, could, we can look at many aspects of God's law and say that when, um, when Jesus was crucified, those responsible for it uh, were in direct violation of the revealed will of God, which is, quite simply, his law, in summary. But it's not simply that God allowed it to happen, but that, again, it was according to the definite plan of God, His secret will. So, God's secret will was accomplished in the death of Jesus, while His revealed will was disobeyed by those who were responsible. So, obviously, that creates somewhat of a theological conundrum, doesn't it? If it's God's plan, then why is the plan that is acted out and fulfilled working against that which he has revealed and said is right and good? Um, There's a quote on page 21 that I think is uh, very helpful here. Um, This is uh, Wayne, Wayne Grudem. He writes, because God is free, we should not try to seek any more ultimate answer for God's actions in creation than the fact that he willed to do something and that his will has perfect freedom. So long as the actions he takes are consistent with his own moral character, as we've discussed in the freedom of God. Sometimes people try to discover the reason why God had to do one or another action, such as create the world or save us. It is better simply to say that it was God's totally free will, working in a way consistent with his character, that was the final reason why he chose to create the world and to save sinners. And so when we're dealing with a question like this, there is an element of us simply having to submit to the fact that God is right in all that he does because he does it. If God does it, it's good and right because he gets to declare what is good and right. But there is that element that we've highlighted time and time again. God's not going to do anything inconsistent with his moral character. He's not going to work himself contrary to his word. And we're going to look in just a minute at certain passages that, um, that very clearly make this even more difficult. Now, intertwined in all of this is a discussion regarding the problem of evil and the destruction of the wicked, as I already brought up. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this question of the secret versus the revealed will of God only really comes up when it comes to these issues of evil and the destruction of the wicked. Um, no one's ask, you know, no one's questioning um, 
what is what is the secret versus the revealed will of God in um, you know in the salvation of sinners? We look at that and see that's a good and right thing, and we see that God has decreed that, and we're all a little bit self-centered and uh, think that that was a great idea that God saved me. Um, so uh, we're not asking the question of, you know, well, um, I'm, you know, we we talk about it in these terms, but if we're honest, we probably don't think about it enough in these terms of recognizing that we have acted completely contrary to God's will, and yet he chose us anyway. So the secret will of God was that he would redeem a people. Um, the revealed will of God um, is that we submit to his law and that we have broken it. Um, but usually people aren't struggling with that. We look at the gospel and we say, thank God, he's redeemed a people. Um, We're so grateful for that. Um, And so I'm not struggling with what God's revealed versus what he hasn't in that regard. I'm simply pleased with it and I rejoice in it. And that's good and right. But when it comes to the issues of evil, or when we read things in the scriptures, like the life of Job, for example, these questions will come up immediately. Because the scriptures very clearly indicate that God has taken a major role in these instances. Along these lines, also, we have to introduce what is called the doctrine of concurrence, because it plays a major role in this as well. Um, A uh, a quote to help us. The concurrence is the cooperation of the divine power with all subordinate powers. So... The cooperation of God with all subordinate powers, all that he's created then. Humans, angels, demons, all of creation. According to the pre-established laws of their operation. So all the laws of nature, I guess we could refer to. So according to what, how God has created them to work. Causing them to act and to act precisely as they do. So, this is referring to the reality that there are examples in Scripture where God uses evil means to accomplish His greater ends. And there are many texts I can point to to show us that. And again, one of the greatest examples of that is what we've already looked at in Acts 2, where Peter's speaking of of the foreordained plan of God to crucify Jesus at the hands of evil, wicked men. Um, I could just name a few right now that we would think of. Um, Think of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says that that was God who subjected the world to futility through Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit. Uh, I mentioned the life of Job. Um, God himself said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, And said, do with him as you please, just don't kill him. So, uh, there are many other examples. We look at these things and we have to question. Because we recognize that those things that are being done run contrary to the revealed will of God. To what God has told us he expects. Um, but we can't deny God's sovereignty. God is the primary cause of all things. 
No question. And here's where we can relieve the tension, but it's going to take some more discussion. He's the primary cause of all things, but he utilizes secondary means to accomplish his secret will, especially when the end is contrary to the revealed will. So, we'll uh, deal with that in just a moment in greater detail. So, hopefully, are we clear on the difference between secret and revealed will before we push on? The secret will of God is that which actually happens. All that happens is contained within the secret will of God. The revealed will of God is what he has given us in his word. The scriptures, the truth of God's word is the revealed will of God. Any questions before I push on to deal with the problems that I raised? It would be a lot easier if I just wouldn't raise problems. Well, it's not even that. I mean, I had I had a discussion yesterday with several brothers from Arbka churches that we were kind of, and I don't know that it was that we were disagreeing, but just trying to deal with the semantics, the language issues of, you know, some of them are more comfortable using words like desire than I am. I don't know that, I don't, I don't think it's helpful. I think it causes more problems than it helps. So anyway, I, I, it's not a major distinction. Now, there are theological systems, though, that would completely reject this idea altogether because um, the thought in their minds that God would ever have anything to do, would ever come near anything that stinks of evil um, in any way, shape, or form, by any means whatsoever, um, is just so far from how they understand God that they just won't accept it. Um, so even when it comes to passages speaking of God directly causing something to happen, um, they're going to find a way to kind of get around that. So this whole idea is um, is really reprehensible to some people. Well, who's <laughs> if God's not the center of our theology, then it has to be man. And so God doing something for the benefit of man... I'll I'll take that. But when it works against man, or it looks as though God is doing something that harms man, then everyone's hands go up and say, "How can it be? The outrage is uh, is you know it's just overwhelming." Um, so, and I say this from experience. I was um, essentially, um, what's the right word? politely asked to continue searching for a new place of employment when I preached a um, sermon on the book of Job and God's sovereignty over the suffering of Job. Um, How it's more comforting to remove God from our suffering, I don't know. Um, But some are very uncomfortable with the thought that God is sovereign over our suffering. Not that he allows it to happen, but that he has caused it. And in his causing it, that he has a greater purpose. That, to me, is very comforting. <laughs> well, let's... Um, this next little section is going to help us 
And then I'll answer that more directly after we do this. I'm going to kind of build on the problem a little bit more as if we needed that. (laughs) And really this comes down to the age-old problem of divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. What is the role of God versus the role of man? And how do all these other means work in there like Satan, demons, all of these sorts of things? If God governs all things freely, but cannot work against his own nature, character, and essence, and he foreknows and ordains every choice that will ever be made by his creatures, there's two objections that can be raised in that, at least. The first is, if the secret will of God ordains evil, is not God then guilty of committing that evil? And secondly, if the secret will of God ordains evil, is not God unjust then in punishing evildoers? So a good example of that would be whom do you, who comes to mind maybe there? Well, we know God very clearly. Um, okay, Judas, a great example. Yep. I was thinking of uh, Pharaoh. But yeah, those are both um, very clear uh, indications in the scripture that what did, what did God say to uh, Moses? Hey, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And by the way, um, I am going to harden his heart so that he's going to tell you no, essentially. Um, that's kind of parenthetic. That's like the message version. But <laughs> um, <laughs> But we look at that and say, well, then how is God just in condemning Pharaoh or condemning Judas for their actions? He ordained that they should do as they did. Other examples, the Babylonians or the Assyrians taking out the uh, taking the Israelites into captivity, into exile. God said, I will punish the Israelites, for their idolatry and for turning away from me by having other nations come and take them away, essentially. Uh, But God came right around and he punished the Assyrians and he punished the Babylonians. Is that just or is that unjust? So we've created quite a tension. And I think the question is very fair. It's a fair question to ask of God. But I think the Bible gives us um, good answers as well. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, we're always we're always going to cry for justice, and it doesn't seem just. Yeah. Sure. And that you're you're kind of you're you're kind of moving toward where we're going because uh, because of the means. It's an issue of means that we have to deal with here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's many um, well-meaning Christians, too, who were going to try and push against what we're proposing theologically, and, uh, and they're going to raise the same, the same issues. Okay, so if we put everything together, the only logical conclusion 
is that God foreknows and ordains everything that comes to pass, including the willing, evil choices of his creatures. And we know from the scriptures and we know from the nature of God that he is not the source or the author of evil. He is not unjust in judging the wicked. Um, He does not tempt. He cannot be tempted with evil himself. God's ways are just. God's ways have no iniquity. So, this seems like there's a complete contradiction here. And it doesn't resolve any tension. So, we have to look at some more biblical examples. Again, several places we can go. One other instance uh, that I think is very helpful is in the census. Now, if you've uh, read through Second uh, Samuel, you, you understand what's going on here. But um, essentially, David was forbidden by God to take a census of Judah and Israel. This was God's revealed will. Do not do this. But here's what we read, Second Samuel 24 and verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Go take a census. Verse 10 says, But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We see this brought up again in 1 Chronicles 21. But look who it is here in verse... uh, And this will help answer your question, Josh. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So... We have God inciting, we have David accepting responsibility, and we have Satan inciting David. Verses 7 and 8 of 1 Chronicles 21, But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So we have... Three elements at play here. Who incited David? Okay. You've, you've hit on what's important here. And the same can be said of Job. God had an ultimate uh, end in mind. His secret will in mind was a specific end. And that end was that David was going to take the census... And as a result, God was going to punish Israel. Go down the line and see what happens there. So we'll just take in mind that God's end was that David would do this thing that he told him not to do. First Chronicles gives us a, a view into how God did that. He did it through the means, the secondary means of Satan. So God essentially gave permission to Satan to do with David 
what he wanted to accomplish in the end. We see the same thing with Job, right? Have you considered my servant Job? So did God afflict Job with all that happened to him? Did God do that directly himself? No, not at all. But was God primarily responsible for it in that he has complete sovereign reign and rule over Satan and all that he does? Absolutely. And so when we talk about the work of Satan in the world, he's not out free, willy-nilly, doing whatever he wants, however he pleases. Satan or any of his demons or anything. Nothing, nothing, seen or unseen, happens outside of the sovereignty of God. How do we relieve the tension of God ordaining things that are evil? It's the issue of primary. God is the primary cause of all things. But he uses secondary means in order to accomplish them. That's great. That's a very, very important distinction to make too. So when God used the Assyrians to sack the Israelites, it's not like they were sitting back saying, man, we really don't want to do this. We don't want to take them into captivity and put them into slavery and take all of their, all of their loot and all of this stuff. We don't want their land. We don't want any of that. But God is making us do it, so we're going to do it against our will. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Completely responsible. Because it's not as though they're not making willful decisions. Judas willfully decided to do as he did. But it was part of God's sovereign decree, um, which he ordained. So someone's going to say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't work. Either God made him do it through secondary means or he made the decision himself. Well, guess what? That's called uh, mystery. <laughs> it's called biblical tension. We have to be comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable with tensions in the Bible or we will never understand the Bible. We'll never understand God to be God as he is. Um, So it is okay to say, I believe, that God ordains evil in such a way that creatures are still morally responsible for the reasons we just talked about and can and do make willing choices to do the evil that is done. We willfully work against the revealed will of God ourselves. We sin every day, not because God's making us, but because we decide to. But our sins, no matter how big or small, are a part of the overall secret will of God in the end. That whatever comes to pass is as a result of various circumstances that lead up to the final ends.